are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Charlotte Reskowski, volunteer for Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses, flower gardener, artist, and my supportive partner in life for the past 40 years. Hi, Charlotte. Hey, Jeremy. Today is April 16th, 2023, and this is episode 221 of Lighthearted. In a few minutes, we'll be hearing uh, an interview I recorded when I was in Washington State recently with Jim Harnish of the Points Northeast Historical Society about Browns Point Light Station. Then we'll have a special Be a Lighthouse segment. We'll tell you about that a little later. So Charlotte, how was your Easter? You ought to know. You gave me all that chocolate. No, I'm feeling kind of chocolated out and a little sick. <laughs> it was good, though. I'm glad you liked it, I guess. Uh, your uh, dinner, your Easter dinner, was excellent, so thank you for that. Before we tell everyone about our first guest, I want to mention again, I was just in Washington State for a week, and I stayed at the U.S. Lighthouse Society headquarters at Point No Point Light Station in Hansville, which is near Seattle on Puget Sound. Whenever I visit there, I like to get up and see the sunrise over Puget Sound. I know that's hard for you to believe. I don't often get up at sunrise uh, here at home, but it's true. I do do it out there. And several times, I actually had bald eagles right outside my door, which was pretty cool. Also, I saw orcas for the first time when we visited Point Wilson Lighthouse. Well, we get wildlife here too, Jeremy. Told <laughs> we you do. about that possum last night I saw out the window. Yeah. We've had two fishers. We've had a bobcat, you know, so we get wildlife. Yeah, we've had a lot of things in our yard here in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Uh, no orcas yet, though. <laughs> anyway, I want to extend a, a big thank you to Executive Director Jeff Gales of the U.S. Lighthouse Society, his wife Melissa, and all the staff and volunteers of the Society who made my stay so pleasant. Now let's tell everybody about Browns Point Light Station and our guest, Jim Harnish. Sure, Jeremy. Browns Point is on the east side of the entrance to Commencement Bay, which leads from Puget Sound to the port of Tacoma. The first navigational aid at Browns Point was a simple post light established in 1887, two years before Washington became a state. A new square wooden lighthouse began service in 1903 and a fog bell was mounted on the side of the tower. Oscar Brown, the first resident keeper at Browns Point, arrived aboard a lighthouse tender along with his wife, Annie, furniture including a piano and a horse and cow. The animals were lowered to the water by a sling and then swam ashore. During his 36-year tenure as keeper, Brown planted an orchard with apple, pear, and cherry trees and maintained a flower garden. In 1933, the current 38-foot concrete lighthouse tower was built. Its unusual Art Deco style makes it unique among Washington's lighthouses. The fog bell was replaced by a horn operated with compressed air. The 1,200-pound bronze bell was sold to the College of Puget Sound, where it was used to announce the changing of classes. In 1984, it was donated to a local church. A year after its automation in 1963, Browns Point became a public park, which has a large grassy area that's ideal for a picnic. In more recent years, the Point's Northeast Historical Society has restored the Keeper's House and has opened it for overnight stays. The Society carried out a major restoration of the Lighthouse in 2021, including the installation of a new lantern that replicated the one that had been removed years earlier. The light remains an active aid to navigation with a modern LED optic. The mission of the Point's Northeast Historical Society is to preserve, promote, and celebrate the history of Browns Point as well as nearby Dash Point and Northeast Tacoma. Jim Harnish is a board member and past president of the Society. A 2014 newsletter called Jim, quote, the glue that holds us all together, end quote. Jeff Gales of the U.S. Lighthouse Society and I visited Browns Point, kind of on the spur of the moment during my recent trip, and Jim Harnish was nice enough to do an interview in the Keeper's House with almost no notice. It was a very pleasant visit, so let's listen to my conversation with Jim Harnish at the Browns Point Light Station now. I'm here at beautiful Browns Point Light Station in Tacoma, Washington today. 
on a beautiful day after that little uh, little squall passed through here a little while ago, but it's beautiful and sunny out now. And uh, I'm here with Jim Harnish, who is a past president and board member of the Points Northeast Historical Society. Thank you for the, the help, which is the manager of this beautiful place. Also with me is Jeff Gales, executive director of the U.S. Lighthouse Society. It's a, a real pleasure to be here for the first time ever at this beautiful light station. Thanks for doing this today, Jim. Sure. So let me just start by asking you a little bit about your, yourself. How did you get involved with the, uh, the historical society here on the, the lighthouse? When we moved here in uh, 1972, we realized that this is a real historic treasure. And I was in, majored in history, taught history for many years. And, and so it was a way of kind of giving back to the community. And I thought, oh, I'll do a little volunteering. Well, that was 1986, so since then, uh, and I was president and very involved, but after I retired especially, uh, which was uh, really a good activity for me to keep me off the street mm-hmm. and uh, to, to contribute to the community, so. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it seems like it's been a, a good good fit for everybody. Yeah. yeah. I know uh, the Historical Society has done a lot of restoration uh, here, which is, is fantastic. These, these buildings are absolutely gorgeous. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But if we could just touch a little bit on the history of this place. It's an unusual lighthouse architecturally, at least to me. Maybe you could say a little bit about that. When was it built? And uh, is there is it? Can you define the architectural style of this lighthouse? Yeah, that's. Uh, and people say, well, it doesn't look like a lighthouse. And we our response is, no, it's a unique architecture. It's in the art. It was built in the 1930s, 1933, mm-hmm. and which was the Art Deco era. Uh, and so the features are similar to some of the features like in the Empire State Building, for instance. Mm-hmm. And so uh, even though it isn't what you would think about as the classic round uh, tower, this this rectangular tower sticking up is, uh, is unique. And there are not many in the world that ha- have this kind of architecture. Yeah. I think some of the lighthouses in Alaska are vaguely similar. Yeah, I'm not familiar. Yeah, yeah and there's one in New England, uh, Cleveland Ledge Light in Buzzards Bay near Cape Cod uh-huh. that was built in the early 40s that's somewhat similar. Oh, okay. Yeah. But not quite like this. Not this is really yes, unique, yes. and uh, I like it for that reason. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, it's, uh, it's attractive in yeah. its own way. And the, uh, the keeper's house that we're in right now, when, when was this house built? This was built in 1903. Mm-hmm. So the original light was uh, was erected a lamp a lantern on the pole sticking out in the bay here mm-hmm. in 1887 and then as shipping into the port of Tacoma developed uh, they needed something more permanent and they built the, in 1903 mm-hmm. they built the first lighthouse it was a wood lighthouse with a, a bell a, like Liberty Bell hanging a fog signal hanging from the roof uh, and uh, then in 1933 that was replaced with this art deco concrete tower it's a beautiful house and uh, was this a station where you had one keeper and his family living here is that correct yes oscar and annie brown were the original lighthouse keepers they came in 1903 mm-hmm. and there was not not much here uh it was it's it was native land indigenous people the puyallup Indian tribe yeah. uh, land, and they had been, of course, been, were here for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. So then, the uh, with more and more shipping developing, uh, they got a permanent lightkeeper, and and uh, they were here from 1903 to 1939, a very long time uh, for a service. Thirty-six years here. Yeah. Wow, yeah. that is unusual. And they became an important part of the community too. They gave piano lessons to kids, and mm-hmm. and were, were were an important figures in in the community itself. Yeah, and we were talking about it earlier before we started the interview here that Oscar Brown, the first keeper, his name Brown has nothing to do with the fact That's that right. this is Brown's right. point, just coincidence. But, but everybody asks, uh, including Jeff Gales, mm-hmm. uh, you know, is this named for Oscar Brown and? 
And he, he responded actually to a reporter's question like that. And he says, well, my last station was at Smith Island. My name isn't Smith. That was kind of his saying. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So are there, is there anything that stands out for you in the, the, as far as the, like the human history of this place with the Browns or anybody else? Oscar was such an icon here yeah. and for such a long period. So he left in 1939 when the Coast Guard took over. Mm-hmm. So he had been a part of the U.S. Lighthouse so, uh, yeah. service. And uh, so the others were just kind of uh, service people that yeah. came through. They weren't that much a part of the community yeah. like... So he was the only civilian keeper here, and then it was Coast Guard. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's kind of and there were about, I think, six other keepers until mm-hmm. the, until they, until they uh, left in the late '80s. Do I understand correctly that this is a this is a t- city of Tacoma Park? Or it's a it's Metro Parks Tacoma. Actually, we're yep. in the county. If you want to make get. Mm-hmm. And the locals here, when you say you're in Tacoma, say no, we're in Browns Point. Who, who owns the light the lighthouse and the other light station buildings here at this point? The Coast Guard still owns all the mm-hmm. property, th- uh, four acres. And the Metro Parks Tacoma, mm-hmm. uh, which encompasses this whole area, yep. uh, has a lease from the Coast Guard mm-hmm. to have it open as a public park. And then our historical society, Points Northeast Historical Society, we have a written agreement with Metro Parks to collaborate with them in managing the place of restoring the buildings, of maintaining them, doing history programs, right. having, opening the museums, those kinds of things. Uh, so it's a the Coast Guard really doesn't, I don't want to say it doesn't care, but they it's low on their priority, yeah. except the, as, as long as the light's going. Right, they maintain the, the light yeah, itself, so, but they don't have nothing to do with the managing right. of the property or anything, yeah. Points Northeast Historical Society, This managing this light station is part of the mission of the Historical Society, right? Yes. What else does the Historical Society do? Well, our, our, our mission statement says something like that. We're, uh, we restore and maintain and have open to the public historic sites that we do education programs about local history. Uh, there are actually three areas um, the Browns Point, Dash Point, and Northeast Tacoma, and each has its own little culture or, mm-hmm. or lack of culture. Uh, in, in that, so we uh, really be, began as uh, uh, three women around their kitchen table saying, "Oh, we should uh, we should write some history." And they began to develop it. And then when the light station became available, they worked with Metro Parks. To, um, uh, to have a, a home. And uh, although I, I think their, their, their first real endeavor was to prevent Metro Parks from destroying some of the buildings and putting in big toys and, and basketball hoops and that kind of stuff. They wanted to tear down some of the buildings. And so these three women did, did a fantastic job in saving the light station. As, Good for as them. we have it now, yeah. And this is around what era we're talking about there? The 19, mid-1980s. Mm-hmm. Okay. 80, so the society was established in 1986, so probably yeah. 84, 85. And, then. and what was the condition of the lighthouse and the other buildings here when the historical society got involved? Uh, well, Metro Parks had, especially the Lightkeeper's Cottage here, mm-hmm. they had maintained it as a long-term lease place okay. and that they rented out or leased out for extended periods of time mm-hmm. and uh, so they had uh, kind of upgraded in terms of modern conveniences and those kinds of things which were not historical and and that they uh, for instance the uh, oil house was uh, just in almost ready to fall down and the cottage was in okay shape but did not hadn't been really maintained as let alone maintained as a historical structure and so when we took over that in the, in the, around 1990 that, that was one of our major efforts was to bring it back to the way it looked in 1930s mm-hmm. uh, and especially the cottage. So we had major renovation and restoration. 
down to the idea of scraping paint down so many layers to figure out what the re- the original color of mm-hmm. the paint was. Those kinds of things. Took out all the windows and and redid the frames and then put the wavy glass back in. And those little features uh, were a real persnickety about uh, historical accuracy. Yeah, well, you can see that detail everywhere you look here in all the buildings, and it's absolutely so and so beautiful. Lot, lots of research went into it. Like for mm-hmm. instance, this wainscoting was in here. There was baby blue wallpaper, and you know, not, nothing that would have right. reflected a, a U.S. coast guard building yeah i imagine it was the floors were all carpeted and everything by the by the coast guard right and so we ripped those all out and redid the floors to the beautiful fur uh floors and uh some of the original uh clawfoot tub is here Mm -hmm. actually the kitchen was redone in the 1950s so we've preserved that well we've talked about taking it back to make it look like you know the 1930s but then we've just had one well, well, that's it's an example, historic example of a 1950s kitchen. So we have an we have an updated historical mm-hmm. uh, exhibit here. Ours is in the kitchen resembles what we have at Point No Point. Oh, is it? Yeah. yeah. I, I was always curious what era it was. Uh huh. And so knowing that it's 1950s is interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the, because the other thing that we have to always balance is that we're it's, we're a museum, in fact, but we're also a rental, a lighthouse right. rental, and having the, the the kitchen is fully operational mm-hmm. for people who rent the cottage. Yeah, but uh, it, it's. Uh, yeah. It's still 1950s. <laughs> so how long have there been overnight accommodations for the public here? Uh, we began in the 19, early 1990s, mm-hmm. and people can rent it uh, on VRBO or, or Airbnb. Yeah. $200 a night at this point. Uh, you have a park all to yourself. It's not bad for three bedrooms. So three, oh, it's yeah. cheap. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. Full house. Yeah. And what a view. Three, three bedrooms, yeah. Uh, how many people are allowed to stay here? Uh, six people. We're pretty. We're strict on that because you can't uh, manage a historical property. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't allow weddings or parties or groups over six. Mm-hmm. That kind of things. And that's one one group. You can't have multiple. Right. Groups yes. Yeah. You time. get the whole house for the yeah. same price. I imagine you get just couples often. Oh yeah, often. Yeah, and returning couples from all over the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we've had people from New Zealand and from Africa and from India and uh, that that come back again. Yeah. And let alone, I think we were up to close to forty-eight different states people mm-hmm. came here from. So that's wow. Uh, Jim, I learned that a long a little while ago about the the usage of the historic site. And I think a lot of uh, nonprofits and groups that run lighthouses, you know, they want to generate, generate income through weddings, through events, and that's fine. But I've learned that these are historic lighthouses and they're not event venues necessarily. Yeah. And yeah. it is really hard on the properties. So, yeah. you know, in essence, I have decided that Raise money other ways as opposed yeah, to having, yeah, yeah. You, know, you know, wedding receptions and what have you because it's better for the property. Yeah. Uh, just to add on to that, too, that's why we keep the rental rate low. So because we want people to be able to experience a little bit of what the lightkeeper, uh, lightkeeper's life was all about. So, mm-hmm. I mean, don't think that I'm not romantic or anything. I mean, if somebody yeah. wants to exchange yeah. vows or have a wedding ceremony out here at our, at our lighthouse, I think that's fine. But, you know, setting up a tent and doing that whole thing with a dance floor and a DJ, I mean, that doesn't make yeah, any no, sense. No, yeah, We recommend that lighthouses don't offer that as an option, but certainly, uh, you know, a small ceremony is okay right. on the beach yeah. or whatever. So, I imagine you get quite a few of those, I would think, here. Do you have weddings here fairly often? Uh, there's weddings in the park. Okay. But uh, Metro Parks doesn't authorize it or let you reserve it, so you're there with people throwing frisbees and all of that, but not in the cottage. We we used to have one little ad in the one of the lighthouse magazines, and uh, that uh, so we would get lighthouse nuts or historic junkies mm-hmm. uh, that really appreciated it and loved it and took care of it. Yeah. And then when we went on VRBO or Airbnb, the clientele changed, yeah. and so we had to also then change our contract 
uh, with mm-hmm. them and lay out specifically some of the things you're talking about that are not allowed. Mm-hmm. And again, those are those are hard to to uh, to check yeah. on, but. We have also a three-night minimum, and that's that's helped to keep people that just want to rent it for a party or mm-hmm. or a wedding or that kind of thing. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. And it's the same rate. It's open all year, right? All, the same all rate year, all right. year? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. doesn't go up in the summer. No, it was too confusing for us to do that. <laughs> uh-huh. Are children allowed? Yes, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. How about dogs? Probably not. Uh, no, 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 no I pets. I wouldn't think so. No pets, yeah. yeah. So I, kn- I know there's, uh, you talked a bit about the, the preservation, the restoration of this place over the years, but there's been a number of projects fairly recently, right, it's, including the, a lot of work on the lighthouse mm-hmm. tower itself, mm-hmm. right? There are seven buildings on the property, and the, we saved the lighthouse to last mm-hmm. uh, because it was going to be the biggest project, most expensive, most complex. Uh, especially working, having to work with the Coast Guard and, mm-hmm. and Metro Parks. So we had two or three different uh, bureaucratic uh, levels that we had to go through. So, But the cottage was the first that we, we redid. And, and then uh, the, the uh, crew quarters uh, that we did in the 19, whenever it was, can't remember, then we turned to the bell house. We call it the bell house. It was the pump house. But now it displays the bell where people can ring the actual, the old bell from the 1903 lighthouse. Hmm. And then then the, the choice was to do the generator building. And so, again, that was an easier building and also was right next to the lighthouse. And so it was like, oh, look at what they did to this building. Now you can donate to do the lighthouse. And anyway, we so we designed a, a fundraiser during COVID, big discussion of whether we should go through with that or not. And um, we got three big grants uh, from the, uh, the Port of Tacoma and the Cheney Foundation and, and from the uh, Pierce County Historic Preservation. So we had 100000 in the bank. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we went out to the public. And because of the, the, the community, this is the icon of Browns Point, and people love this lighthouse, and they identify with it. And so we went out uh, just to our membership and to some other uh, lists that we had, and boom, 60000 came in within a month. Uh-huh. And so we were already at, at our budget. Our fundraiser was more than successful. So as I understand it, originally there was a, a lantern uh, with the light inside the, the lantern or lantern mm-hmm. room, similar to what's there now. But then at some point, I imagine by the, by the coast, in the Coast Guard era, that was removed and a more modern optic was put up there. Yes, yes. Uh, in fact, we've got mm-hmm. a picture of, of a helicopter placing the, the, the light up there. Oh, really? Yeah. A couple of different important architectural features that were missing uh, either had been taken down or, or ne- and never replaced. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, the one was the, the lantern housing around the light. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that uh, this made all the difference in the world because people would say, well, that really doesn't look like a lighthouse. And now it looks like a lighthouse, even mm-hmm. with an Art Deco lighthouse and some other features, architectural features that were, were important. So it's a small enclosure, lantern. I haven't gone inside the tower. I'm not exactly sure what it looks like inside. Are there stairs inside no, the tower? No, there's, there there's just a, a ladder, ladder that's hooked to the side of the wall mm-hmm. and that goes straight up to a platform. Okay. And so anything that you'd take up, you'd have to have in your hand. So there's a trap door kind of thing at the top. Okay. That, that's how you access the light. Right, yes. Yeah. So this is still an active federal Coast Guard aid to navigation, yes. right? So Coast Guard yes, it is. aid to navigation mm-hmm. team comes here occasionally. Yep. Is yes. uh, What kind of optic is in there? Is it an LED of some it's kind? A, oh, yes. So it's an LED light, you know, mm-hmm. like, like a, a stack of donuts. Yes, uh, and, VLB uh, forty four. Uh, that's right. Yeah. That's right. That's mm-hmm. right. And uh, and it's powered by a solar panel. 
And uh, I'm, I'm just uh, sorry, I got distracted. I'm looking out at the windsurfers out here. Is that a co- very common occurrence here? Oh, yeah. That, in fact, this is one of the best places for windsurfers, they say, because the currents and the wind and mm-hmm. the way it, they're out here at 30 degrees in, in the winter and going to 30 mile an hour winds. Probably wearing wetsuits, I would think, in uh, the winter. Yeah, yeah. yes. Yeah. Or yeah. dry suits. Or wet, anyway, right, yeah, right. right yeah. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. What about you get uh, much wildlife here? Do you get, see orcas sometimes here and other wildlife? Yes, yeah, there mm-hmm. the orcas and there's other there's uh, marble merlets. They're a little bird that feed here, uh, and they're unique to this Browns Point Lighthouse area. We just learned that there was an, a biologist I met that uh, comes here all the time to do studies with his students at, from the University of Puget Sound yeah. on this this species of birds. What are they called again? Marbled marlette. It's actually kind of neat that you actually have a species of bird that only exists here. Yeah. Well, well, they they feed. Yeah, right. They feed here. Yeah. That's kind of neat. Yeah, right. It makes you even more special. We we are uh, actually in contact with this uh, biologist and. Uh, we're going to have him do a field trip for the local people uh, or school kids. So anyway, we're working mm-hmm. that out. Do you have uh, school groups come here to the light station? Yeah, right? we've mm-hmm. we've attracted. There's four local schools, and every May or early June, we've had uh, for years, probably for 12 years or so, a, f- a fourth grade field trips where they study Washington State history. Mm-hmm. So they bring the kids for the day, and yeah. we have a whole curriculum um, that they have. We have about seven different stations, so it, and the kids rotate in smaller groups to each mm-hmm. one of the stations, and our docents then give them a little spiel, and they learn about the lighthouse, and they learn about the history of the area and the life of the lightkeepers. That all of those are, in fact. We were enlisting some people to clean up the boathouse here a, m- a year ago, and there showed up these two teenage girls. And so I got talking, and I said, well, how come you, you're you volunteering? She said, well, we were on our fourth grade field trip, you know, 10 years ago, wow. and we just thought we should help out with this. So that's that fantastic. Was and that's, that's part of our mission, is yeah. to interest kids in history and the history of their own area and yeah. the heritage stuff and yeah yeah well, you're definitely doing something right that's uh, something we're always talking about trying to attract uh, yeah. younger people you showed us you the, hit, you hit the jackpot there you got yeah. them to come back that's yeah. right and that it, we're we've got a plan for uh, a boy scout a uh, eagle scout candidate to organize a group to redo the uh, repaint the fence around the cottage, mm-hmm. which will involve their parents, and they will all come. And again, as so many organizations, probably uh, of attracting younger people, uh, young adults or adults, uh, into being interested in history and participating and continue the work that we've been doing since 1986. And uh, so that some of our thinking is that yeah engage the their kids and they bring the parents along well when kids after the fourth grade field trip they go home and then they invite their parents for our open houses every weekend mm-hmm. and they're the they're the docents and uh-huh. they are answering all the questions and doing the tour for their parents so you it's should, you should uh, videotape that, that yeah awesome. yeah that would be yeah uh, you showed us the the classroom, the sort of old-fashioned classroom with the old wooden desks you've got set up for yeah. the for the kids when they come. And I, you got to say what you told me and Jeff earlier. The small there's small blackboards on the desks, and what do you, what do you tell the kids about <laughs> yeah, those? Yeah, oh yeah. Well, there's the, two. There's one a, a real slate blackboard that we had rep, a replica of one yeah. from the local schools. Anyway, the kids love to write on that blackboard, and they always leave messages there. But on their on their desks are are the old fashioned. I'm not sure what you call them, but uh, uh, they're like small little blackboards yep. that kids would use. And we today that that's the ver- first version of the iPads. <laughs> I love that. Uh, <laughs> I hope the kids uh, get a laugh out of that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Jim, one of the unique aspects to Brown's Point is the historic boathouse, which in my mind doesn't exist anywhere else on Puget mm. Sound. 
Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yeah. uh, that building, its restoration, and what you have inside? Yeah. That, uh, the boathouse was built in 1906, and so Oscar Brown had a boat, and that he rode across from Brown's Point across the Commencement Bay to Tacoma for provisions, because there were no roads here until 1921, or power, or water. But it was in, in wonderful shape, uh, in terms structurally, and so we've, we've restored it to as an exhibit, uh, uh, but we didn't have a boat, so we decided that we needed a boat, and we we uh, hired a, uh, a boat preservationist, uh, old world craftsman who's keeping the, the skills alive, and he built a, a replica U.S. Coast Guard surf boat all by hand, no power tools. He worked on the beach to, uh, with hot water to bend the boards for the, the bow, and uh, people would come and watch him work. So now we have that on display uh, as an example of, of, uh, of an, what the U.S. Coast Guard used to use for rescue kinds of stuff. I've seen great examples of boathouses on, the, on the Great Lakes and even on the East Coast, but on the West Coast they're very unusual. And you know, there's there's different aspects to light stations that people don't normally understand or comprehend. I mean, it's not just a light. You had your sound signal, your foghorns. You had the life-saving aspect to lighthouses, which sometimes involved keepers saving lives or a life-saving station that was attached to it. And you have the whole navigational aspect of lighthouses. People don't realize that they were used to actually navigate by. They weren't just to mark dangerous spot. So the fact that you're able to uh, show uh, a life-saving and or a, yeah. a boathouse that might have featured a life-saving vessel or a, even a vessel the keeper used for, for his use to uh, go get supplies or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Remember, when this light station was built, there was no roads. Right. He had to uh, make do with uh, waiting for supplies or get his own by, yeah. by rowing somewhere, right? Yeah. Yeah, the life of a lightkeeper was 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 not an easy task. I mean, it was 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they were on duty without a lot of support. Just a quick story that you about the lightkeeper. When Oscar and Annie came here in 1903, there was nothing in the area, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it all came by boat, and the tender stopped out here, dropped them off at the beach, including their piano, which we have a replica of the kind of piano that Oscar, who was a musician, had, uh, but also his uh, animal, his cow. And the story goes that the cow started swimming the wrong direction, not towards the shore, but out. I don't know if that's true, but it makes for a good story for, for, for tourists. I'll bet the kids like that story. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's the one they remember. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let me ask you uh, about tours here. People can get a, do you have like guided tours here at certain times? We, uh, now that COVID is over, uh, mm-hmm. we, yes, we're, uh, we have uh, docents on Saturdays uh, from Memorial Day through Labor Day and trained docents. Uh, we probably have about 40 of them. Wow. And that they, uh, they lead personal tours of the buildings free. We don't charge for anything that, that we do. We have a big event for uh, Lighthouse Day in August uh, that uh, uh, gathers a crowd. So when we have uh, signage throughout the park, that historic signage and, and describes mm-hmm. what's uh, what the buildings are about and some, yeah. some of those things. So. Notice that. Really nice signage. Very well done. Yeah. Yeah. It seems fairly recent, uh, some of those. Yes, yes, yes. We got some grants from the Port of Tacoma again mm-hmm. for, for those. and. Uh, attracting grants that uh, uh, support tourist activities of bringing people to the to the area. They're yeah. expensive. They're yeah. like ten, yeah. twenty thousand for a, yeah. one of those signs. Wow. Port of Tacoma can afford it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, is there a website for the organization? Sure. Uh, it's uh, pointsnortheast.org. Mm-hmm. Point, points infor- plural. plural. Po- right. Pointsnortheast.org. And there's information about Browns Point Light Station on there. Right? Yes, there is. Mm-hmm. And uh, also for the cottage uh, rental, uh, there's a link to VRBO and for Airbnb. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Well, fantastic. I, I'm really having a great time visiting here. I'm really uh, happy we came here today. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. If anybody, if there are any lighthouse buffs out there who see a picture of this lighthouse and think that's kind of odd looking and think, well, I, okay, I'll skip that one because it's an odd looking lighthouse. That would be the biggest mistake of their lives. Because <laughs> uh, it's, I actually like the, the lighthouse, its uniqueness and the, the buildings here are so beautifully cared for, so, so nicely restored. It's a great place to visit. One of the uh, U.S. Lighthouse Society's tours of lighthouses of the Puget Sound that they have pretty regularly, uh, one of the groups that stopped here was the last on the tour, yep. and the feedback was this was the most, the best, best stop. stop ever. We think maybe it was because of the wine we served, but uh, they that truly, didn't hurt. now you've, you've confirmed <laughs> that it's, some, it's the beauty of the place and the, the quality of the restoration. Wine and cheese doesn't hurt, but uh, I think, it's, <laughs> I think this, the rest of it is more important. Well, Jim Harness, thank you so much uh, for hosting us today and for doing this uh, interview. Uh, it's, a, it's a true pleasure. I just thank you very, Good. very much. Good. Thanks for coming. about the Points Northeast Historical Society in Browns Point Light Station, visit pointsnortheast.org. Click on Cottage Rental for information on staying at the historic lightkeeper's house at Browns Point. As I said in the interview, I was very impressed with the restoration of the buildings of Browns Point. It's really one of the most attractive light stations I've seen in a long time, and Jim Harnish couldn't have been nicer or more hospitable. So let's go to our next interview. Regular listeners to this podcast might remember that we've done occasional Be a Lighthouse segments, spotlighting people doing good in the world. Charlotte, please help me tell our listeners about our guest, George Fox. George Fox, who lives in Bethel, Maine, spent several months in Ukraine helping war refugees escape the country to Poland. He was visiting a friend in Warsaw, Poland, when the war broke out, and he felt he needed to do something to help the Ukrainian people. During his time in Ukraine, George transported people west out of Ukraine and brought supplies east. After three separate stays in Ukraine, George says he's fallen in love with the country and its people. He hopes eventually to go back to help rebuild the country. I've known George Fox for more than 10 years. He used to live here on the New Hampshire seacoast, and he was very involved in the early days of the restoration of the Wood Island Lifesaving Station in Kittery, Maine. We met for coffee recently, and then he visited my home to record the interview you're about to hear. So let's listen to it now. I'm here at my home in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, with my friend uh, George Fox, and we're going to talk about George's recent experience helping the people of Ukraine. George, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for the invite. So before we talk about Ukraine, you and I first met, I'm going to say, about 10 years ago. Longer. Take, is it longer? Oh, 11 yeah. 11 or 12 years, I think, actually. Yeah, more than 10 years ago, when you were very involved in the early stages of the restoration of the Wood Island Lifesaving Station in Kittery, Maine. That's correct. Uh, it must be pretty exciting for you to see the progress that's been made there in recent years. What I'm tickled. Yeah? Oh, Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? Well, it was an amazing journey, and yeah. it was really slow starting getting yeah. the town of Kittery to pay attention and to uh, you know rally the people that needed to fall into place to, to really mm -hmm. make it happen. And so, yeah, I was just a small piece in the beginning, and, and it's taken on a life of its own, and it's extraordinary. The final product is going to be exactly what I had envisioned in the very beginning, and that is a um, an interactive... Um, museum. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. I've been out there in the last couple of years. It's absolutely incredible. And you were more than a small piece in the beginning. And it's good to say that you had a lot. You were one of the catalysts. Well, yeah. Uh, Lawrence Bussey and myself were Save Wood Island. And then I knocked on the door of Dean Howell as I knocked on a lot of doors of people that had uh, picture windows looking at um, Wood Island. And mm -hmm. um, and he said, you need to talk to my nephew, Sam Reed. <laughs> and so I looked up Sam Reed and I sat him down. And I said, Sam, I, I need some help here because uh, I know how to restore this building. But what I don't know how to do is to convince the town of Kittery to let me restore the building. Yeah. And uh, and then we all know what Sam Reed did. So mm -hmm. 
Um, I think the the greatest contribution he, he might have gotten involved at some point anyway, but I did approach him and yeah. say help. Yeah, and he did. He sure did. The rest is history. Yeah. He had Sam on the podcast, so uh, maybe some of our listeners have heard that. And uh, I've been out there, you know, since it was uh, after it was largely restored, and it's just a miracle, really, oh. what's happened there. Yeah. So I wish we could talk more about that. Maybe sometime we can talk. another time. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. uh, that's such a, a great subject in itself. But let's talk about Ukraine for a few minutes here. So. First of all, please tell me how you happened to get involved with helping the people of Ukraine. I was skiing at Sunday River last year in February, and I crashed. And I crashed pretty hard, and that's a whole story in itself. But anyway, I cracked my L3 and my L4 vertebrae, which is not a big deal, really. Those are the little kind of side bones alongside the discs. And so there's no real surgery that's involved there. You just have to let it heal and you got to rest. So that put an end to my third ski season. There was two with COVID and then one with a ski crash. And we had another one this year, but that's another injury. Uh, so now along with that, I have a friend in Warsaw, uh, a Polish gal that I met on Nantucket Island 20 years ago. And we stayed in touch and she's been trying to get me to come over and visit. So I said, you know, I can't ski anymore this year, so I'll come and visit. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't been to Europe in the longest time, so I bought my ticket. And a week after I bought my ticket, this damn war started. And so uh, when I arrived in Warsaw, the invasion from Belarus was about 10 days going. So I get to Warsaw, and I'd already seen these images on TV of these refugee camps on the border of Poland, Ukraine, with these women and children and elderly streaming across with their suitcases and their little dogs and cats. And I said to my friend, Marta, I said, and I had a, a rented car. I said, Marta, I'd love to spend some time with you because I haven't seen you in so long, but I'm going to the border because mm -hmm. I know that I can do something to help. That's how it happened. Mm -hmm. Serendipitously. Yeah. So that's how it happened. But why did it happen? Why did you decide to, to help out? Why did I decide to, to do what not... Spend time with this beautiful woman, Mar uh, Marta, that I hadn't seen in 20 years, that I was really excited to go see, who yeah. she's uh, 20 years my junior. My heart told me that there was these people in need, and and that just that became my priority. It, it just did. Mm -hmm. I, I had I had, and it had a lot to do with the fact that I had seen these images, like we all had seen on TV. The images were extraordinary because because these women and children. Uh, and, the, and the elderly, they were fleeing horrific scenarios, yes. but they were very calm, very cool and collected. It, it, there wasn't any mayhem with these Ukrainians that had streamed into Poland across mm -hmm. the border. And that's what was the most amazing thing for me. They were just almost emotionless. And, and I thought, my, it's so amazing, that contrast if it was really a mess, I don't know if I, you know, if it had been a really dicey thing, I don't know. I might have paused because uh, I'm not a, you know, I am. I have no humanitarian experience. I have no military experience. Mm -hmm. um, but from what I saw on TV and I also, you could see all the volunteers helping. Yeah. You know, the, the food tables and the uh, just the relief that was there on the Poland side. I just knew that I could be a part of that. Well, I think a lot of us saw those images on TV and thought, "Boy, I should I should really help out over there." But you actually did it. So a lot of people did. A lot of people showed up. People from all over the world. Yeah, I'm showed sure. up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so how much time and all did you spend there? Uh, well, I made three trips uh, in uh, spring, summer, and fall, and roughly two months each time. So it was about twenty-four weeks uh, mm -hmm. all told. Okay, so approximately six months, or a little less. Yeah. Two and two and two. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Did you work with a particular organization or are you pretty much on your own? Um, well, when I showed up, I basically, I showed up at this refugee camp and I had a car. Mm -hmm. So I knew that I could uh, drive people to where they needed to go because uh, most of the people that showed up had already networked. They knew where they were going. Mm -hmm. They had places to go. They just needed to get out of the country and they needed... Uh, transportation to various hubs where they could then meet, you know, get, get the train or the bus to so-and-so because they had places to go. Um, 
and there was an informal network that had developed at the border. So really, my first day, I just approached some people. I said, I have a car and, and you know, this couple of gals with reflective vests on said, we have a family that needs to go to Warsaw. And I said, well, I'm, I'm staying in Warsaw. And next thing I know, I have a the CEO of MetLife of Ukraine with her daughter and grandson. And they were, um, I was introduced to them and and my handler said, well, here's this guy, George, he's an American. He's going to take you to Warsaw. And uh, and the woman, the Ukrainian woman, she she looked at me. She kind of, she chewed on it for a minute because there had already been some, even in the early stages, there had been some some stories of, yes. uh, you know. And uh, so she just sort of looked at me and, uh, and I just kind of, uh, you know, put my hands in a prayer gesture and said, I just, she, you know, she really didn't speak any English. And she sized me up and then she just decided, all right, feels good. And. And uh, they piled into the car and uh, off I went, turned around, came back the next day. And then, and then I just checked in with, with a guy with a clipboard. And I, you know, I, they already knew who I was. And, and they said, yeah, well, here's this family needs to go back to Warsaw. And so there I was going back and forth, four hour drive one way from the border to uh, Warsaw. Yeah. And so that's what I was doing. I was transporting refugees uh, mainly to Warsaw. And you mentioned you worked with uh, volunteers from all over. Well, yes. Now, um, after, uh, as we all know, that initial invasion from Belarus um, really died on the vine. And it, um, we all saw what this Russian army was not capable of, what they weren't capable of. Yeah. And so the the flow of refugees trickled because uh, Western Ukraine was a fairly safe zone. Ukraine's the size of Texas. So when, when the Russian army left uh northern Ukraine, that border of Belarus there, then um, so not so now the flow of refugees kind of reversed. There was now women coming back. They were coming back to stand by their husbands and their brothers and their and their fathers. And um, so at that point, there was really kind of nothing really to do. And um, so at that point, because the these volunteers had assembled, we all had uh, become friends and, and some of them had uh, vans and they were networking into Ukraine for humanitarian aid runs in there. And so I was able to uh, to team up with them with some people um, informally, no real um, organized things, just very loose and um, loose knit. And the materials that needed to go into Ukraine, the food and, mm-hmm. and water and clothing and uh, diapers and dog food and, and tactical equipment and, and things were... Uh, just being warehoused, an extraordinary stream of stuff. And so anybody that had a van just found ways to get materials to places that needed to be delivered to. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I was doing. I was really much a driver and kind of a logistics coordinator. So uh, you mentioned uh, the, the woman you first uh, transported that she didn't speak English at all. I, I know that some Ukrainians obviously speak English, but when they didn't, how did you communicate with them? <laughs> well, so on this first, uh, this very first run um, with this woman's family, the the CEO from Ukraine, she was the one that turned me on to cell phone translator, mm-hmm. and so she pushed a button on her phone and held it to my face as I'm driving, or no, she actually said something first. She spoke Ukrainian into her phone. She pushed a button, held her phone near my ear, and what she had said in Ukrainian was now coming out in English mm-hmm. and then she pushed a button and I spoke what I needed to reply back to her and then she pushed a button and it spoke what I said in English into Ukrainian and we spent the whole time driving up to Warsaw speaking like that it's extraordinary piece of technology yeah so I was I read an article uh, about you in uh, I think in one of the a local newspaper or website but mentioned something interesting some uh, stuff that happened on your very first day in Ukraine yeah um so this was when I was still staying. This is before I had moved into Ukraine. So I was um, stationed at the border at the refugee camp. There was a hotel there. I moved down from Warsaw because I was bouncing around Airbnbs. And so it was just easier to just be at the border. One day, four vans showed up from Wales. They had stuffed four van full of supplies that local people had just donated. They had four vans full and these guys from Wales drove straight to the border. They drove straight like 30 hours. Mm -hmm. They arrived out of the blue and luckily we had some tents to be able to offload. Several of their vans were 
rent-a-vans, which you cannot take across the border. Uh, you can't take a rent-a-car across the border into a war zone. It's just, um, it's not allowed. Yeah. Uh, but one of them was privately owned and we had a van. And so uh, this, the day after, one guy that I've been working with, he said, do you want to, you want to go to, you want to go into Ukraine? We'll take uh, some supplies. And I went, well, why not? I'd been on the border for several weeks already. Uh, sure. Let's go into Ukraine. Uh, so one of the vans was the Wales guys and our van, and we had two full vans of stuff, and we drove across the border. Of course, um, the going across the border is a little bit of a a detail because you go through two border crossings. Unlike in the states here, when you like go into Canada, you go through the Canadian customs, and coming back, you go through the American ones. Over there, when you go from Poland into Ukraine, you first go through the Polish side. That's a whole big thing. Uh, big check, and then you go 100 feet, and now you're at the Ukrainian checkpoint, and that's mm-hmm. a whole big thing. Mm-hmm. So, so we drove to uh, we drove to Lviv, which is the um, western uh, big city there. It's just an hour from the border, and we dropped off our supplies at a, a Ukrainian youth center that had been organized for uh, as a depot to to take supplies off. So we did that, and then before going back to Poland, we were stopping at the train station in Lviv to pick up refugees because we had empty vans now, and there was a big refugee center there at the um, train station with refugees needing to go places uh, in Poland. Mm -hmm. So we were there, and uh, before we had actually left the depot where we had dropped off the supplies, I heard this siren, and it was kind of odd. It was like in the afternoon, and I didn't really think much of it because after I'd lived next to the Portsmouth shipyard and you know there's shift change whistles and I lived in back of the Kittery Point firehouse and there's a whistle that goes off at six in the evening so I'd mm-hmm. you know it just I didn't really think much of it and uh, so then we get to uh, the train station we had gone across a bunch of cobblestone streets we're parking and we're getting refugees loaded in and somebody points over the top of uh, a set of buildings and there was this big plume of black billowing smoke and Lviv had been bombed. It was the first day that Lviv had been bombed and there we were about a half a mile from that and it was really quite extraordinary. We didn't hear the explosion because we were going across cobblestones. So the guys I was with, they actually got pretty nervous about it. I actually um, surprisingly wasn't nervous. In fact, I wanted to get more people loaded aboard, but uh, they wanted to get out quick. So we scrambled out and I got some pretty amazing pictures of uh, yeah. of that. So yeah, my very first day in Ukraine, in Lviv, I was uh, about a half a mile away from the, of a guided missile strike. Yeah. I remember that. Certainly. It was a surprise to a lot of people when they, yeah. when they hit Lviv for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it hit a, it hit a, a fuel mm-hmm. depot. What is your opinion of the Ukrainian people? Oh, you just can't say enough. I mean, the Ukrainians are a model for really how people should be. They are so respectful, extraordinary amount of, uh, extraordinary respect. Here's a, for instance, when the power goes out in in the cities, and so you've got a four way, you got a four way intersection that was used to be controlled by a traffic light. Mm-hmm. Now it's not working. Now you can imagine what that would be like in New York City, if the traffic light was not working. It would be mayhem. It's mayhem anyway. Well, people would be people would be yeah. out of their cars and screaming at each other, and it would just people would be getting shot. There'd be so much road rage in Ukraine. It, it becomes like a a four way stop sign. You go when you know it's your turn, and it's orderly. Yeah. And it just up it just flows, and so that's a perfect example of of how they are. They are really smart. The Ukrainians that are the, the military ones that are going over and training on these tanks and and and, and um, I hope that they're training on fighter jets. They are learning really quick. Mm-hmm. I mean, the reason why we said no in the beginning is we didn't think that they would be able to learn this technology quick enough. Right. The uh, you know the Patriot missile systems and the HIMARS and everything. We were going no 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 no. It just takes too long to train. Yeah, they get it really quick. Mm-hmm. Um, they are creative, amazing creativity mm-hmm. with their art and architecture, and they have a great sense of humor. They are smiling. They are loving in the face of all this craziness. They, it's it's just it's just amazing. Yeah. I love them. They're they're just model people. Mm-hmm. So, uh, where did you live when you were there? 
Well, I was first staying in Warsaw, and then I was staying uh, at a Polish border town of Rebene, and then I moved into across the border into Ukraine, and I was living in the city of Lviv. Yeah. Uh, and that was where I stayed most of the time. Um, I, I've visited and I've branched out and I've gone to pretty much all corners of Ukraine except the uh, um, except the far northeast um, mm-hmm. of uh, um, where you know Kharkiv is. But um, no, I've stayed in Odessa. I've stayed. I went to the uh, Carpathian Mountains, um, Kiev, um, mm-hmm. and. Um, so, but yeah. Lviv was the Lviv was my was my base. Yeah. What the Donbass region? You were the, you yes, yes. I um, I took a uh, I had a uh, a van full of plywood to take to a school that had been bombed out that they wanted to uh, board up all the windows, and I also had in this load I also had um, boots for a military base, and so I got to. Uh, I drove 16 hours from Lviv to uh, Dnipro and got there and got a hotel room and woke up the next morning, went to breakfast, and I heard, I'm sitting there having breakfast and and I hear the voice standing over me going, uh, this voice goes, hey man, and I, I turn around and, you know, it's obviously an American guy mm-hmm. and um, and he just sort of picked me out as American, I guess. And he'd been over there for six months. Um, they were there um, in previously occupied areas, delivering food and water, and also extracting people. Um, and all there, they'd been doing a lot of great work, but all their vehicles were broken. And I said, I'm eventually going back to Lviv, and and he sort of was getting ready to go back to America. So anyway, we decided. He asked me if I wanted to do a. Uh, uh, run some missions with him because they didn't have any vehicles. And then I said, sure. And then I can take you back to, I can take you back to Lviv if you want to start making your way back to the States. So that's what we did. Um, he had a team. And uh, um, so we went to a depot and we um, picked up some food, food bags and water and fresh bread. And, uh, and then we, we, we went on a route that they had previously been on. And we went to these little out of the way villages where, you know that, and this is very close to the front line. You could the ground was shaking from artillery. I mean, you could hear all the explosions off in the distance, and uh, every now and then there'd be a really loud explosion. And I, the first time I heard it, I just jumped, and and my guy said, "Oh, don't worry, that's outgoing." So we were surrounded by you know hidden artillery batteries that were Ukrainians, uh, and you know the air smelled of 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 this artillery fire thing, and. Um, and so that was it was really quite an extraordinary experience being out there. I guess so. Yeah. yeah. Were you ever afraid for your own safety? No, I wasn't. And, you know, I was telling that to a, a friend, a guy I befriended who was a military guy. I was telling him, you know, I've never been in war or anything, but I'm, you know, with all these explosions going off in the air with gunpowder, you know, with just the smell. I said, you know, it's it's extraordinary how I really wasn't afraid. And he looked at me and he said, be afraid. He goes, you better be afraid because being afraid saves your life. And that was so profound mm-hmm. uh, to hear that, but I get it. Yeah, I've heard that be said about war before. Yeah, be afraid. Yes. Because then you'll be, you'll just be more careful. Mm-hmm. Not that I wasn't, not that I was being reckless. I was just being, I was just doing what I was told. Yeah. But I was not at all nervous or yeah. anxious at all. Yeah. So that was, and we were, you know, every time we parked, these guys got out. They didn't stand near the van. They said, don't stand near the van. And we were parking under trees and behind buildings. And even right. then they said, I mean, obviously we couldn't help it if we're, you know, un- if we're unloading food and stuff like that. But, yeah. but these guys, as soon as we parked, they got away from the van. Because they were hitting you. you well, know, drones. Vehicles, right? Drones. Yeah. Yeah. And we had already taped, we taped the license plates. We took down all the decals mm-hmm. um, that indicated that it was any kind of Western uh, um, humanitarian. Um, so we had all that masked and, and, um, but still, um, you just, yeah, those were precautions. So I read something interesting in the article, uh, I was reading about you, about your experience, uh, seeing the use of dolphins to help, uh, Ukrainian children. Yes. Um, on my first trip, I've heard about Odessa. Okay. Now I, of course, I don't really think I'd paid too much attention before I went to Ukraine. I mean, you know, before I went to Ukraine last year, the only thing I knew about Ukraine was Odessa. 
I mean, not Odessa, sorry. Um, Chernobyl. That was what, you know, my whole anything about Ukraine was Chernobyl. Yeah. Knew nothing else. But when I got to, uh, now that I'm there, I'm hearing about Odessa. I'm hearing about it. It's so beautiful. It's on the Black Sea. Just, just, it's a whole different kind of city. Yeah. Uh, just with their architecture, just the people, uh, almost kind of rebellious. And um, so I was very um, interested in going to Odessa. So I got to Odessa on my second trip last summer. And um, it really wasn't anything other than I wanted to go to Odessa. I didn't have a uh, any missions. I had rented a car. I got to Odessa and I wanted to go right to the water. I wanted to touch the water. I mean, you know, I'm a I'm a, you know, mariner. So I wanted to, first thing, I wanted to just get down to the water. And the streets were all laid out in sort of a weird way. And I just was driving back and forth, trying to find the way down to the water. And finally, I just opened up my GPS and I put my finger on the coast. And I just went, okay, just take me to the water. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm following my GPS and I'm going along and I'm going downhill. And I came to, I was brought to... This hotel, I pulled up to it, very fancy hotel, mm-hmm. and uh, it turned out to be a, uh, uh, a hotel that has an attached dolphinarium, which is a dolphin program. They have an amphitheater, so they have like SeaWorld type of dolphin and walrus. They have shows, but they also have uh, a training center for dolphins, and they also have a therapy uh, center there for um, dolphin uh, therapy, and and I guess you know I'd never yeah there's always you know swim with dolphins that everybody I've never done the swim with the dolphins, mm-hmm. um, and I of course we all know about animal therapy, um, but what I didn't know was was that dolphins emit ultrasounds from their blowholes, which have research has shown that these ultrasounds in close proximity to especially young children with developing brains with with, uh, uh, neurological either injuries or disabilities, like, for instance, autism, that therapy and exposure to these ultrasounds from these dolphin blowholes Mm -hmm. are creating good results. And now especially with these Ukrainian children that are war-torn, that are just some of these kids, they're not even speaking anymore. They're just in shells of themselves. And um, so it's helping with them. And I just, I was awestruck by that. They allowed me to sit in on, there's a private uh, dolphin pool where they do these sessions and they allowed me to, to, to watch the, the parents allowed me to, take pictures and videos and they were okay with me sharing these pictures and videos and you know my heart just exploded with compassion when I saw these therapists holding this child and walking into the water and these dolphins swimming up and putting their heads right next to this child's head dolphins know exactly what they're doing I it's I mean it's just beyond yeah yeah it's just extraordinary experience oh Yeah. yeah do you hope to go back I'll go back I will. Absolutely. It's not a hope. It's, I know I will. Yeah. Uh, I'll certainly go back to help rebuild because that's going to be even more of an amazing feat than what it took to defend uh, Ukraine and to um, ensure they're um, not losing is the worldwide effort to rebuild this place. There's going to be container ships coming in with building materials and um, heavy machinery. It, it's going to be it's just going to be extraordinary to watch what the world does coming together to help you to help rebuild Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And I'll be a part of that. I know I will. I know you will too. Yeah. Uh, so I have one final question for you for bonus points. Okay. Uh, what was your favorite thing about your time in Ukraine? Oh, I got to say that my experience uh, in Odessa, that was real special, especially the, um, this hotel where I stayed at. I mean, I just, you know, the, with the dolphins and, and just the people, I mean, that became my um, most favorite thing was being there, staying there. And, and they almost like became my family. And, uh, and, and so I just had so much love for them. And they knew that I was there helping. And, and, and they just showed me so much appreciation. And, 
And um, so that I, um, you know, I love that so much that I, I did go back. I, I went back to the exact same place um, uh, on my third trip. So that ex- so that place, you know, a, a time, place, um, people, um, geographical place that, you know, that was uh, the Nemo. The Nemo in Odessa um, was um, um, was was very special. Uh, well, it's an extraordinary story. And George Fox, I thank you so much for doing this today, for talking with me today. And I thank you for being a lighthouse in the world. Thank you, George. I'll go back to Ukraine, back to Odessa, and I will find a, a lighthouse to um, to do a Zoom thing with you. I will hold you to that. Okay. <laughs> I'm date. sorry. I I'm sorry. I didn't think of it the last time I was there. Well, we're gonna do it. We'll when pull you go it back. Up. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, George. Thank you, Jeremy. We thank George Fox for being a lighthouse in the world in the tradition of lighthouses, standing for hope and service to others. I also want to mention that George requested that I give his email address. Uh, in case anybody would like to contact him. George's email address is georgesfox at msn.com. Again, that's G-E-O-R-G-E-S, as in Sam, Fox, georgesfox at msn.com. One of the organizations you can donate to is Safe Passage for, the number four, Ukraine a nonprofit that is working to get people at risk out of the country. Their website is sp4ukraine.org. Yeah, again, that's sp4ukraine.org. I was thinking more about the lighthouse as a symbol of hope and guidance in the world. At the end of every episode of this podcast, we always say, keep a good light. For me, that simply means be kind, be helpful, stay engaged, and stay positive. It's how lighthouse keepers live their lives, and it's how many people like George Fox are choosing to live their lives today. In next week's episode of Lighthearted, we'll be talking about another lighthouse in Washington that also happens to be the headquarters of the U.S. Lighthouse Society. Point no point. Be sure to check out uslhs.org to learn more about everything the U.S. Lighthouse Society offers, including preservation grants, the passport program, the research catalog, and domestic and international tours. Remember that donations and memberships support this podcast. For now, to all our regular listeners and our new ones, thanks so much for listening and keep a good light. Shine, let it shine, let it shine